Reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 11 to 17. Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, uh, though the poor man's wisdom is dis is despised and his words are not heard. The words of wise, or of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of ruler among fools. This is the word of the Lord. One of the uh, resources that I've accessed as I've been kind of going through Ecclesiastes, even though we're going through it in a great hurry, is a little book by Sinclair Ferguson, who wrote this little, very short book called The Pundit's Folly. And of this text, Sinclair Ferguson wrote that Solomon, the pundit, was a man of wide experience. He was also a man with strong appetites, not for him the half-hearted search for truth. He was prepared to try anything, yet he was invariably disappointed. Nothing in the world seemed to deliver what it promised. And this was the experience of one who, as we've seen over the last several weeks, had it all in human terms. God had given Solomon wisdom, power, fame, and wealth. He had blessed this king beyond measure. And Solomon lived a life that was the envy of everyone who knew him. People came from far and wide to see the greatness of his kingdom and to hear him expound on the wisdom that God had given him. And still in the midst of this life, he saw that under, under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. All of those things that speak to the way that we as human beings believe the world ought to work that good behavior should be rewarded, that knowledge should be compensated for, that all of these things that we expect to happen, Solomon said, it's not like that. And why? Because time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Wealth and fame and power and wisdom, none of these things gave Solomon the capacity to control time as it marched on or to control the things that happen that are beyond all human control. As Solomon made clear in chapter 8, verse 8, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. And as to those things that he referred to and that we often perceive as human beings to be chance, well, chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God 
that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know he cannot find it out. So all that we perceive as chance, especially those who do not know the Lord as their Savior, all that human beings perceive as chance, Solomon says that's, that's really the work of God. We just can't see it or understand it because we don't know why God is working in that way. At the beginning of chapter 9, he had written, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. So when Solomon uses that word chance, he's not contradicting all the rest of the Bible, which tells us there is no such thing. He's just looking at it from this perspective under the sun and saying that when the snow falls before the crops are in, when things happen that we don't understand and can't somehow reconcile to our way of thinking, these things are in the hand of God. God is at work, but we just don't understand how. All things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand, the Heidelberg Catechism says. But since we are finite and limited by sin, even in our ability to perceive what's happening in the world around us, we do not understand and we certainly cannot control the providence of God. But regarding Solomon, with whom we have this in common, Sinclair Ferguson continued, even at his cynical low points, he had fleeting moments of illumination, penetrating the darkness of his world. He was like a man lost in a labyrinth, pursuing beams of light in the hope that one of them would lead him out into the rays of sun. Life is like that for everyone, even the committed agnostic and atheist. And don't we find that to be so? How often as we look back on the course of our lives and we think about the way in which God has worked and the way that circumstances have occurred, do we feel like that, that rat in the maze, that person trapped in a labyrinth, seeing a gleam of light and chasing it down only to find it's a dead end and then turning around and pursuing another gleam of light, hoping that something in this world is going to lead us to that place where we want to be. And it will, because as his father David had said down in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? David's asking this question as if maybe he wants to get away from it and can't, or maybe somehow he feels like he's been torn away from it and needs to remind himself that he has not. But he says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There's nothing by chance. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And Solomon is encountering that truth as he ponders the things that are happening in his life and in his kingdom, in his family, as he maybe has observed that down spiral 
in everything since he passed that time where the temple had been built and started pursuing the things of the world. But while he's pursuing those little gleams of light, he runs into them right in the midst of relating how the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Chapter 9, verses 13 to 15, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. And that phrase, under the sun, is important in our understanding of this book. It's not always wisdom according to how God works, but wisdom as in understanding that, especially apart from God, this world doesn't work the way we think it should. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. I said last week and a couple of weeks before that that we always have to understand this book of Ecclesiastes in the context of Solomon's life, we also have to understand it in the context of the whole of Scripture. We have no idea the exact historical event to which Solomon may have been referring here. It, It might have been something from one of his own campaigns. He might be remembering a time when he himself was the great king and he went out thinking that he could conquer and overcome anything and discovered that in this town where there was a poor man who had great wisdom, he was thwarted. Regardless, there's a principle here. And having assured us that the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, Solomon, I think, wants us to understand that even wisdom is not always recognized or valued according to its true worth. And we know this. We know this from our own experiences in this world under the sun. And we know it because, as Ferguson has written, the words here read almost like a prophecy. Whose name most naturally comes to mind when we hear of a poor man full of wisdom who became a savior but whose life and teaching have been neglected and rejected. Instinctively, we probably think of Jesus, wrote the commentator, and certainly we should. Because there is a prime example of what is described for us in Ecclesiastes 9, verses 13 to 15, it would be him. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, this being under the purview of his providence as well, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now connect that to this story about a poor wise man under the sun who gave wisdom to be the savior of a city and understand that That's really what God is doing in his creation. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because Paul is saying that what we believe and what we preach, this message of the gospel that leads to the salvation of people's souls, is going to be perceived by the world as foolishness. And of course it will. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So Christ himself and the preaching of Christ is foolishness, folly to the Gentiles, folly to the nations, and why wouldn't it be? Just think of the message that we proclaim. Many of us have grown up in the church, we've been Christians for a long time, but think of how that message resonates with people in a world that has embraced some stunted concept of God as you perceive him to be or has rejected the notion of God altogether. Out in the world, people are busy running about from here to there. They're going to school. They're conducting business. They're falling in love. They're doing all of those things that people do, whether or not they have some notion of a higher power. And maybe in some, there is some vague sense of dread, a vague sense that there has to be more to life than this rat race, this running around, chasing after stuff, like we're in a maze or something. Maybe, like Solomon and Carrie Livgren, they have some idea that all we are, apart from God, is dust in the wind. Or maybe they don't. Either way, we come to them as Christians and we say to them that the answer to that vague sense of dread, that longing that they feel at the core of their being, because as they perceive it, all is vanity and chasing after wind, can only be answered by an itinerant Jewish rabbi who, having been conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, you know these words. But think of how they resonate with someone who doesn't already believe. We come and we say there was this rabbi 2,000 years ago. And he wasn't an ordinary human being. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and he was actually born of a virgin, a woman who had never known a man. He suffered in his life and was crucified, died and was buried. He descended into hell. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is now seated at the right hand of God from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. That's the gospel message as we have it summarized for us in the Apostles' Creed. But imagine how that sounds to someone who doesn't yet believe. I remember going through the old evangelism explosion program and after we explained the gospel to people, we were supposed to ask the question, does this make sense to you? And of course, there were those people who said, yeah, it kind of does, that was a good thing. But it seemed like more often than not, it did not make sense for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And I want you to understand this is God's plan. This is how it's been from the beginning. This is a feature, not a bug, as they say. God did it this way on purpose so that we would perceive that the wisdom and the power and the grace that we need for salvation doesn't come from ourselves. We don't work ourselves into a state of faith. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. We don't work ourselves through good works into a state of grace and salvation because no one could ever do that. It's not our wisdom 
that we bring to the discussion with God that makes us see, yeah, that, that makes total sense, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me and for my salvation. God didn't want it to be that way because he doesn't want us taking the credit. He gets all the glory for this, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In other words, the man who is wise according to worldly standards is not going to be saved by worldly wisdom. Any more than the mighty will be saved by their might or the rich by their wealth or fill in the blank on whatever attribute you want. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So while some demand signs and others seek the wisdom of this world and of this age, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, this world that we live in is a city under siege. People today are living and dying in their sin. People always have. And the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for claiming to be wise in a human sense they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. But this is the grace of God revealed to us in Scripture. It is the word, the wisdom of God become flesh and living among us. He who is rich became poor. He who was with God in the beginning and indeed was God, Jesus Christ, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And we might be tempted to think, wouldn't it have worked better if Jesus had just got on the white horse in all of his warrior regala and showed up on planet Earth with all the hosts of heaven riding in formation behind him? to demand our obedience, to demand our fealty. But that's not how God did it. He didn't want us saying, well, it sure seemed wise to follow Jesus because if I didn't, it looked like things were not going to turn out so well. Jesus humbled himself. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. At Christmas time, we always go to those very familiar passages where we look at how the Son came into the world in this weak, little, helpless baby. That's how he came, because he didn't want us to think that somehow we would see the truth and perceive it by our own wisdom and turn to him. Being found in human form, Jesus himself humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on the cross. And while the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, that same word to us who are being saved is the power of God indeed. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's not a worldly wisdom. 
It's not a wisdom that makes sense to people in this age who look at it from some sort of an objective kind of point of view, humanly speaking. It's Christ, the wisdom of God and the power of God. And because the wisdom of God is Christ, well, his foolishness is wiser than men. And his weakness is stronger than men. One author has written, sin is folly because it is disobedience and rebellion against the, the will of the one who has made us, loves us, sustains us, and will finally judge us. What could be more foolish than that? Well, the ultimate foolishness would actually be to ignore or to forget that God is saving his people through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. He is the one who Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He's not talking about rich in the things of this world. He's talking about being rich in grace, being rich in the peace of God that passes understanding, being rich in the wisdom and power of God by which we are saved, if by his grace we have turned from sin and self and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is that poor, wise man who is delivering his people through the wisdom of God. So turn to him if you have not. Pray to him. Call upon his name, acknowledging him as Lord of heaven and earth and Lord of your life. He is the boss of you. Repent and be baptized, Peter said, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And if that's not a description of your faith, then I, I encourage you, come talk to me. Let me share this wisdom of God which is wiser than man's so you can know Christ as your Lord and Savior as well. Do not commit the folly of forgetting the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, by whom God is delivering his people. And if you are someone who knows him, who has trusted in him alone, who has professed your faith and believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, well, don't make the same mistake and think, well, that's a done deal now. I don't have to think about it anymore. Make that profession public. And join with the people of God everywhere, calling on all those who will listen to trust in Christ our Savior. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are called by God, to those who are being saved. It is the wisdom of God and the power of God, for in him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Glory to his holy name.